3: And welcome back to The X-Zone, everyone. I am Rob McConnell, and for the next four hours, I'm your host and your guide as together we cross the time-space continuum to this place that I call The X-Zone. It's a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. It's a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. And The X-Zone comes to you Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern, right here on the Exxon Broadcast Network, Talkstar Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, iHeart Radio, and around the world on Simul TV. If you would like to send me an email, it's very simple. Same email address for over 20-some-odd years, exxon at com. on all social media sites, Exone Radio TV. And to find out the programming we have available for one and all on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net, and also check out our broadcast schedule on Simultv, www.simultv.com. My guest this hour, XO Nation, is Larry Hancock, and he brings his formal training in history and cultural anthropology to his research and writing on Cold War history and natural security subjects. A graduate of the University of New Mexico, he earned his B.A. with honors majoring in history, cultural anthropology, and education. Following service in the United States Air Force, his career in computer communications and technologies marketing allowed him the opportunity to become involved in and consult on strategic analysis and planning studies. Now following retirement, Larry returned to his long-term interest in historical research. Known as a document geek... He uh, scheduled and researched and published several collections of CIA, FBI, and military documents um, prior to beginning his writing efforts. His document work led to uh, becoming a member of the board of Mary Farrell Foundation, a major online interactive history archive with seven books in print. His most recent works includes Killing King, an exploration of the four-year conspiracy which led to the death of Martin Luther King Jr., a study of long-term patterns and covert actions, and deniable warfare, Uh, the effectiveness of national command authority, and the command and control of practices, surprise attack, and the national intelligence problem of UFOs, unidentified. Joining me now is Larry Hancock. And, Larry, welcome to the X-Zone.
1: Thank you, sir. Good to be here.
3: First of all, Larry, I'd like to thank you for your service.
1: Oh, I appreciate that.
3: And um, how did you become involved in an investigation of the Martin Luther King Jr. assassination?
1: That's, that's really a bit strange. My partner and I, research partner Stuart Wexler and I, mm-hmm. were actually, we worked on all the political assassinations of the 60s, and we were looking at the, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, and we picked up some suspects uh, that could have been involved in that, that some people thought had been, which led us back to the White Knights of Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And after we got to learn more about the White Knights of Mississippi and these individuals, we got quite interested in their apparent involvement in the King assassination. And that <laughs> that led us to, to a multi-year investigation of that in regards to Martin Luther King and, and the conspiracy there.
3: Now, immediately after the death of Martin Luther King, both the FBI director and attorney general stated that only a single assassin was involved, yet you say in your book that the FBI initially thought there were multiple suspects. Was there a public cover-up from that very day?
1: In in a way, there was. There were certainly two levels of cover-up. The the attorney general in the United States later admitted Mm -hmm. that he had issued a statement and, and directed... J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director, to issue his own a statement that only a single individual had been involved. And they issued those statements within hours of the shooting when that couldn't possibly have been known. If you think about it a bit, there was no one in custody. That's right. Uh, it was just impossible for them to make that statement. And later he admitted that they had done that strictly – to try to calm panic because riots were already breaking out across the nation mm-hmm. and they didn't they didn't want people going after groups they didn't want conflict between groups so from that respect admittedly there was there was a cover up from the very beginning trying to tie it to a lone individual
3: mind you the action of the fbi in that circumstance made a lot of sense because of the amount of rioting that would have happened if the uh, appropriate action had not been taken. Did the FBI suppress any aspects of the crime or identifications of uh, conspiracy?
1: By the end of our research, we concluded the FBI might well have suppressed the fact that they had had informants within the white knights Mm -hmm. that they had, they had worked uh, trying to control racial terrorism in Mississippi for a number of years. And and we know that they had informants in, in various crimes, that when those crimes, by ex- exposing those, their participation, they would have essentially shut down those informants. And we suspect that they have waited certain areas of investigation simply because they didn't want to pursue the fact that those people themselves might have been involved.
3: Interesting. Now, why didn't evidence of a conspiracy emerge at James Earl Ray's trial?
1: The sad point about that from our perspective is that his lawyer and, and he had many lawyers over mm-hmm. a period of time, but even even immediately after his capture, which took some weeks, he he consulted a number of lawyers, one of the first of which had been a virtually unknown lawyer who worked with the White Knights. But at, at the time of the assassination, his lawyers were advising them that unless he entered a guilty plea, uh he was almost certain to be convicted, and receive the death penalty. So he followed their advice, uh, pled guilty. The trial itself, there was there was no defense because yeah. there was a guilty plea, and all the evidence was accepted, and it was done.
3: So why was the case reopened for an inquiry by the House Select Committee on the Assassinations?
1: Well, really, I, th- I think— it- It, as with the JFK assassination, actually all three political assassinations had become to be come into question by the 70s because after Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia Mm -hmm. and Watergate, uh, the public was quite concerned, Congress was quite concerned that it had been routine for the American intelligence agencies, the FBI, the CIA, to withhold information and the A great deal of of lack of trust had developed. And the HSCA, the House Select Committee, really was tasked with looking at all three of those investigations, although they only really had the time and money to look into JFK and MLK.
3: Yeah. What evidence convinced the HSCA that there was, in fact, a conspiracy?
1: The more they looked at James Earl Ray himself, Mm -hmm. the the more it became obvious that the man had no motive. He had no history in that kind of crime. He had no backstory in racial hatred or violence. And so that made them very suspicious. And the next thing was they found that the one interest he had, and everyone testified to, was money. He was— Everything he did was about money, and they began to discover a series of leads to a a very large bounty that Ray had become aware of. And that led them off on the trail of looking at the fact that Ray had responded to a bounty offer and entered into a conspiracy as, as, a, as a tool of that bounty, essentially.
3: Now, if the HSCA determined that there was, in fact, a conspiracy in the murder of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, why it was not reopened as a murder investigation. Why was it not reopened, I should say, as a murder investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice?
1: That's a very frustrating thing. And, of, and of course, the, the truth is they found, that they reached the same conclusion as far as JFK mm-hmm. and MLK, that there was evidence of conspiracy. The problem is, as far as the Justice Department and MLK, the just the Justice Department was facing the fact that Ray had been convicted. You know, it was not a cold case. It was, by their definition, not an open criminal act, and they just used that as a justification not to respond.
3: So do you think they just fluffed it off?
1: Uh, yes, it certainly does look like, in in both cases, it looks mm. like justice, we know actually yeah. that we, we have the documents now that shows that justice... actually tried to involve itself originally and had some suspicion that there was there's something that the FBI wasn't doing and that J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI actually kept them out of their investigation we go through that in in our book and it appears that that after the HSCA brought this back to them the Justice Department looked at the history of it and decided they just didn't want to revisit that.
3: Larry, stand by, my friend. You and I have got to take our first commercial break. Exxon Nation, Larry Hancock is our very special guest this hour. And uh, Larry's website is www.larry-hancock.com. That's larry-hancock.com. And Larry and I will be back on the other side of this commercial break as we continue here in the Exxon with yours truly, Rob McConnell, from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away.
0: Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today.
3: Modern Esoteric Beyond Our Senses by Brad Olson. Consummates the lifeology story about where humanity originates. Larry Hancock is our special guest this hour. Exonation. www.larry-hancock.com. How, uh, Larry, how are you and your your co-researcher able to uncover the details of a conspiracy that both the FBI and the House Select Committee on Assassinations missed?
1: Well, we were especially fortunate in a couple of ways. For one thing, the FBI initially, because James Earl Ray had used a variety of aliases. Mm-hmm. Several names came up earlier in their investigation, and they really didn't focus in on James Earl Ray for several weeks, nor did they take him into custody, which the good news for us is they really investigated a lot of leads and a lot of suspects, which is something you don't find in the JFK or, or RFK cases. So there were a lot of leads, and they pursued a lot of people, and Fortunately for us, through the Freedom of Information Act, we were able to get a lot of those and develop them further. And the other thing, quite frankly, is the FBI has always been very bad about sharing information internally. So you find things in one field office that another field office didn't know, the headquarters didn't know. And because of the data mining and databases we have now, we could look at things that none of their field offices saw in toto, and we know that because we actually interviewed some of the FBI agents that were involved, and they were sort of amazed that at information we would tell them that the FBI had held that they were totally unaware of.
3: Isn't that the, the same as in the case of the JFK assassination, that the FBI, you know, had information that wasn't shared with other offices that could have prevented the assassination?
2: It it
1: absolutely was Uh, there it and it's it's very frustrating because the FBI historically and even up to uh, 2001 Mm -hmm. uh, to to the attacks on America just didn't have very good tools they didn't have very good computer systems even at that time in this day decade they were lagging by virtually behind virtually every agency in the government Partially because, to be honest, in having investigated them, some of their offices were very parochial. They liked to pursue their investigations and get prosecutions and get brownie points from the director. And that means that they held information they probably should have shared.
3: Gee, that's a, that's a very bad tactic to follow in police work. It's uh, you know, I'm a former cop myself, and the key to any success with during an investigation bringing the perpetrator to justice is the sharing of information.
1: Well, well, it is. and we've also talked yeah. to a lot of local law enforcement people, and unfortunately, again, this is I'm not speaking about now, but historically, yeah. local law enforcement had a rather negative attitude towards FBI in terms of the FBI always wanted information, they virtually never shared it. And to some extent, that didn't make local law enforcement excited about working with them. And and, and yes, that, I would say that's defeated a yeah. lot of the investigation, or at least investigations that we've looked at.
3: You know, you would have thought that based on the reputation of the FBI as being uh, one of the best police agencies in the world, that they would have the very best equipment.
1: Yeah, you would. Part of it, however, I think in in these, in the Cold War era, had to do with Director Hoover's personality. Director Hoover, if you look at the memo trails and the communications trails, literally everything was sent from the field offices to, quote-unquote, the seat of government, Mm -hmm. which is FBI headquarters. And it was all sent to Hoover. It was like, it wasn't even like a spider web, but it was in a way. Hoover wanted to see everything. He wanted to control everything. And that doesn't lead to an environment that really, in some ways, it looks like he actually suppressed technology and procedures that might have moved things forward because in, in an effort to maintain virtually total control.
3: Mm-hmm. Sounds like a control freak.
1: I think you could say that about Director Hoover.
3: Micromanagement at its at its best. Uh, were you and your re- fellow researchers able to identify specific names of suspects in the conspiracy, and who were they?
1: We were. We, this led us back to developing these bounty officer, offers that the mm-hmm. HSCA had identified. And what we really determined, the, the, the bounty offer that was in play with uh, Martin Luther King Jr., was actually some four years old at the time of his death, and it had first been offered by the White Knights of Mississippi by Sam Bowers, uh, that's the first name that comes into play, to a professional assassin uh, named Sparks, and Sparks was part of a network of criminals called the Dixie Mafia, and Sparks and a fellow named McManaman, Leroy McManaman, were involved in in this bounty offer with the White Knights over this period of time. Initially, the White Knights had offered uh, $10,000, and Sparks responded and was actually in place to shoot Martha and Luther King, and the White Knights failed to come up with the cash, and the way these things work is no cash, no action. Right. But the, what changed over the course of the next few years is the White Knights actually came out up with a way to fund this with money coming out of Atlanta, Georgia, and they raised $100,000, and it became a brand-new deal.
3: For our listeners who may not know the history of the South, could you please explain to them who the White Knights that you keep on talking about are?
1: The White Knights were a, a very unique racist clan, an organization in Mississippi. They were... Described by the FBI as the most violent Klan in the United States, they had a history of bombings. Uh, If if anyone's heard of the Mississippi burning attack uh, where three young civil rights workers were killed and their bodies buried, the white knights were behind that. And, And Sam Bowers, whom I just mentioned, was actually convicted and charged and went to jail in that attack. But this wasn't. These folks weren't like the larger Klan groups that you might be familiar with. They were much more tightly organized, more compartmentalized, and much more tactically sophisticated. Uh, their goal was not just to intimidate blacks, but actually to bring about open racial warfare involving not only blacks, but Jews. And they they bombed and attacked uh, synagogues equally as 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 Black Americans,
3: why? What was the reason for the White Knights trying to have Martin Luther King Jr. killed, or assassinated, murdered?
1: Basically, this goes back to something that that isn't much discussed and hasn't been much discussed, and that is the fact that this particular clan, as controlled by Sam Bowers,
2: mm-hmm.
1: was motivated by Christian identity religion, and that complicates things. Uh, Christian identity religion, which Bowers firmly believed in and several of his followers did, meant that they could only achieve what they wanted in religious terms by bringing about Armageddon. And that would only happen with a full-scale race war. And they concluded uh, that the best way to trigger that would be to attack black leaders, and specifically to maximize their impact. They weren't interested in attacking the more radical black leaders. They wanted as, as much, a, to make as much an impression as possible, and they felt the way to do that would be to target King uniquely because he was a pacifist, and he believed in nonviolence, and they felt the maximum impact could be gained by violently killing someone who believed in nonviolence.
3: Was the FBI aware of their, their plans
1: they were aware of their plans. And this is, uh, of course, the FBI, unfortunately, uh, Martin Luther King had been threatened many times. He had been attacked many times. They were, they were aware of informants, for example, mm-hmm. that the White Knights had tried to kill him on multiple occasions. One of their informants had told them about a very sophisticated attack involving uh, snipers and bombs placed under a bridge. And the only reason that didn't happen is is that word was passed King and he took a different route. Um, but they were they were not only aware uh, that the White Knights were a threat, they were specifically aware of this bounty offer against Dr. King. And the reason they were aware of that uh, was because a fellow who had been in prison with McManaman. Informed them of that, went to the FBI and described the offer to him. That gentleman's name is Donald Nissen. He's still alive, and we found him during the course of investigation, our investigations, and were able to interview him at length to connect a lot of these dots.
3: Did the FBI have Dr. King under protective surveillance?
1: They did not. And one of the. the One of the reasons for that is that Director Hoover, because Martin Luther King had complained about the FBI's lack of protection and civil rights incidents, Mm -hmm. uh, just simply by challenging the FBI, he had become an enemy of of Director Hoover. And Director Hoover, again, we have the documents, had had created a smear campaign against King trying to uh, discredit him. He, he didn't want to do anything. As a matter of fact, he issued an order that threats that were known to the FBI right. would not be communicated to King or his aides.
3: All right, stand by, Larry. You and I have to take our news break at the bottom of the hour. Exo Nation Larry Hancock is our special guest. And his website is www.larry-hancock.com. And we'll continue here in the Exo from our broadcast. Studios and offices in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, on the other side of this break. Don't go away. Broadcast studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, to the world and beyond. You're watching the Exxon Broadcast Network. www.xzbn.net.
2: AVS Media.
4: I am Dr. Carl O'Heilvy, founder president by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com.
3: Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the x Radio Show with Rob McConnell, the Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiacca, Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Rob McConnell here, presenting an overview for Nicholas Paul Jinnick's, author of a fascinating book, Amen. Welcome back, everyone. Larry Hancock is our special guest for this hour, www.larry-hancock.com. So so the FBI knew that there was this bounty out. They knew that the White Knights had it out for King. The director of the FBI didn't want to give King any, any protection because he was, you know, Dr. King was actually... Complaining that he wasn't getting the protection that he deserved. So, where does the fault lie? Can we say that the FBI was complicit?
1: We what we can absolutely say is that the FBI did not pay any particular attention to this threat and did a bad. I, I'm not. I hesitate to use the word complicit. I would characterize them as not very um, capable in this particular investigation. I Honestly, they received so many threats against Dr. King. Mm-hmm. They investigated all of them, but they did it with the minimal energy. For example, in this case, um, Mr. Nissen had been given a series of cutouts, individuals that he was to contact if he was interested in, in taking advantage of this bounty. And the bounty was $100,000 to kill King or $20,000 simply to, to do surveillance of King and kind of support the effort. When the FBI got that level of detail, it was very precise. And so they went to Mississippi and they interviewed the first name that he had given them. And that happened to be a lady real estate broker. And they interviewed her. And of course they said, she said, oh, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, and they said, thank you, ma'am, and left. And and unfortunately, having looked at the FBI's, the FBI really wasn't very good at open-ended investigations. It's almost like they had so much on their plate that they closed them down as soon as possible if there would not been a crime. If there had already been a crime, it was a totally different story. But if there's just a threat, clearly they just... They did kind of the minimum. They did did not even ask her about Leroy McManaman, who Donald Nissen had named. They didn't go back to talk to McManaman at the time, nor did they go back to the prison where he was, he had been, where Nissen had been, and determined that this lady had visited him multiple times in prison and was actually engaged to marry him. So, um, complicit, uh, inept perhaps, or just not that interested.
3: Uh, if, if, if Dr. King would have been a white civic leader, would the FBI have treated the case differently?
1: I, th- I think they would have. I think uh, bottom line is, after studying the FBI during this period, mm-hmm. all of the field offices were very driven by Hoover's priorities. And it was very clear to the field that Hoover was not that concerned about RFK. Or, sorry, about MLK because MLK had, had said bad things about the FBI. So the field offices tend to follow that kind of direction. And I'm not even sure it was just a black-white thing. It was definitely a Martin Luther King, Director Hoover does not want to, it's not like this guy, he's insulted us. And so this isn't really a priority for us. Uh, wow. I, I think that's fair to say.
3: What was the motive for the assassination and was it different than uh, James Earl Ray's reason for being involved?
1: The motive for the people that organized conspiracy for Sam Bowers, for the people within the White Knights, was to bring about racial conflict, racial warfare. That's Bowers said that he's actually Mm -hmm. we have an FBI informant who was on record with the FBI saying that Bowers remarked to him that actually most of the people in the White Knights had no idea what the real motive was. They were just he referred to them as rednecks and kind of treated them as as cannon fodder. But Mm -hmm. Bowers was very sophisticated. He considered himself, interestingly, described himself as a warrior monk. And he was into this belief system, into the, the whole concept. That was the motive. As far as James Earl Ray was concerned, he had been a, a prison escapee for over a year. He had already tried to get out of, off the continent through Canada. He had tried to get out through Mexico. Both those efforts had failed. He was in Los Angeles. He had tried to get a job. That really didn't work. And he was running out of money. And for him, the motive strictly was money.
3: Was James Earl Ray involved in the actual assassination, and, and was he the shooter?
2: We
1: feel that he was actually involved in the assassination. I mean, in fact, there's literally no doubt, and we mm-hmm. kind of go step by step through that, what his path from Los, Angel- uh, from Los Angeles to the South, First, he did not go directly to Atlanta. His first stop on the south was to go to an out-of-the-way place where MLK was scheduled to speak. And he never could explain it during the trial or anywhere else. Why in the world he ended up there? Well, he actually said he got lost on the freeway. But if you look closely, there's really not an exit off the freeway that he was taking Atlanta to get him there. He was clearly there stalking MLK. And it just so happened that once again, MLK spontaneously changed his plans and spoke at a different town than he was supposed to, where Ray was. Uh, When Ray went on to Atlanta, again, he was clearly Mm -hmm. stalking MLK. Long story short is there is no doubt that Ray was involved in this conspiracy and knew that King was being targeted.
3: You know, they say... sorry. sorry. No, go ahead, sir.
1: Where, where the evidence gets really bad, and this is, is the fault of Ray's trial, where a lot of evidence was accepted without any challenge, without a defense, the House Select Committee found lots of problems with the evidence against Ray. Uh, lots of loose ends. But enough so that you could say, yes, Ray was in the building. It's very likely the shot was fired from the building. And odds are that Ray may have taken it. Uh, one of the reasons that suggests that is his his history in crimes, Ray's history in crimes, had always been doing stupid things during a crime. He would act very spontaneously, no matter what the plan was. And in this case, our conclusion was that he decided at the last moment when he realized that James that across. The motel across the street from him, Dr. King had come out on the balcony twice and he knew that that bounty offer was $100,000 and the best he might get otherwise was possibly 10 or 20 and he may have taken that shot. The problem with that Mm -hmm. is nothing about what he did shows any sign of premeditation because he had no escape plan. He left all the stuff in the room that he had no need to take in the room. He left stuff back in Atlanta. It, it looks entirely stupid if he had planned to kill him, but he may have done so spontaneously.
3: Did we learn anything that we could use from the from the investigation that was that was carried out into MLK's assassination?
1: We did. We learned there's there's actually a number of, for example, there were unknown fingerprints that the FBI was never able to identify and trouble to identify. We're still investigating those with the the National APHIS uh, fingerprint system. There's work that can be done there. The FBI ad- identified two very mysterious characters that were in town uh, that. Fled town immediately after the shooting that may well have been Dixie Mafia members. Uh, they lost them. Both men were clearly clearly doing something highly suspicious, and that represents a good lead. There are other leads in Atlanta that we've developed out of it. We, we feel that the case could certainly be taken further, including the fact that we have Nissen, who is a living witness to having carried part of the bounty money for the killing to Mississippi from Atlanta,
3: what would be, what would be accomplished by reopening the investigation and reopening the case?
1: The point would be that it would really clarify a point of American history right. and the fact that this was a political assassination that was driven by motives that we haven't acknowledged historically. We've, as with the JFK assassination, we've. We've let a single individual take the responsibility for the crime, and this individual has no motive. There is no way that you can find a motive for James Earl Ray as an individual. The same goes in the JFK case. And so what we have left ourselves, our, our history is, is incomplete because we're not acknowledging the full story.
2: There
3: seems to be a number of uh, similarities in the, between the JFK case and uh, the MLK case.
1: There are. One of the, the big similarities is the fact that, as mentioned before, as, as soon as the FBI has crime scene evidence mm-hmm. that pointed towards an individual, we see in both cases that they essentially closed down their investigation. In the case of MLK, that took several weeks. In the case of JFK, we can show by documents that Director Hoover closed that investigation down within 12 hours.
3: You and I have to take our final break, Larry. When When we come back, I'd like to talk to you about the uh, JFK case. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Very interesting topic.
1: Oh, certainly. Thank you.
3: All right. Stand by. Larry Hancock is our guest. www.larry.com. Dash Hancock.com And this is The X-Zone. My name is Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. If you'd like to send an email, X-Zone at x TV.com on all social media sites, x Radio TV. And don't forget, you can check us out at www.xzbn.net and watch us on Simul TV. We'll be back after this break. Don't go away.
0: Simo TV. Sound too good to be true? Well it's not. You can have Simo TV today. Sign up at SimulTV.com. Do it today.
3: The new nonfiction book Razor of Madness is similar to cult movies like Clockwork Orange, Dragon's Tattoo, or The Other Side of Hell. Wayne Morin Jr. and Thomas Lee Howell expose widespread and systematic deficiencies in this thought-provoking tell-all novel. Mind control rages among scholars in law schools. Human rights are ignored while thought, reform, and mental manipulation are accepted practices used as behavior modification. Dr. Louis Jolion West comes to mind. Media and public scrutiny shows that United States mental hospitals are in fact destructive murder industries. Razor of Madness Exposé Novel details this epidemic through an in-depth professional and personal investigation. For decades, there has been a revolving door policy that still releases killers and pedophiles back into society. The maestro of mind control continues to haunt America to this very day. Razor of Madness is available in paperback or as a downloadable ebook at Amazon.com.
4: I'm William S. Peckham. If you enjoy a good mystery with a touch of the paranormal, then you'll love my novel, From Out of the Woodwork. It's the story of a young Toronto contractor, Sean Kennedy, who buys derelict homes, guts them, and turns them into multi-family dwellings. Slums just waiting to happen. When Sean buys 29 Livery Lane, the house fights back. Former owners unexpectedly come out of the woodwork as he starts the destruction. The apparitions come to him when he touches old books, reads hidden letters, rummages through old boxes, finds a locket, or reads a discovered manuscript of a murder mystery. From Out of the Woodwork will take you from 1899 to the horror of the World Trade Center, September 11, 2001. Check out From Out of the Woodwork on my website, www.williamspeckham.com.
3: Larry Hancock is my guest to this hour. XO Nation, www.larry-hancock.com. First of all, Larry, thanks so much for coming on the show tonight. Very interesting uh, information that you've been sharing with us. I certainly appreciate your time, sir.
1: Oh, I've enjoyed it.
3: Larry, let's talk about the JFK assassination, because as you and I were discussing the MLK um, case, certain similarities kind of jumped out. For example, when it comes to the information uh, that the FBI had gathered pertaining to a possible uh, attempt on President Kennedy's life was that taken serious? And, and if so, did is this another case where the FBI dropped the ball?
1: The interesting thing in that case is we have a lot of evidence that shows that both the Secret Service and the FBI were concerned about threats to JFK and fall of. 1963. Mm -hmm. For example, a a motorcade in Chicago was actually canceled because of a warning that there were Cuban exiles who had traveled to Chicago that could represent a threat to the president. The motorcade was canceled. Um, Records pertaining to that were destroyed. There there definitely was cover-up within the Secret Service office in Chicago, and we have the documents about that now. It it was so bad that when the secretaries who prepared some of the memos were later questioned by the Assassination Records Review Board, they claimed that they had never seen documents that their own typist identification are on. They're scared to death to talk about it. There's a warning out of um, New Orleans, a warning out of San Antonio, Certainly there were and worse yet, when the Assassinations Record Review Boards in the nineties began investigating this, even in the nineteen nineties, the Secret Service against direct orders destroyed a whole series of files relating to JFK's travels that file that fall. And it makes no sense that they would do that decades later unless somebody had dropped the ball.
3: Was the assassination of JFK a conspiracy? Absolutely. Was Lee Harvey Oswald a patsy?
1: Um, very probable. Uh, one thing that is, I think, super clear is that mm. Lee Harvey Oswald did not at all expect the president to be killed. Lee Harvey Oswald chose every sign of of expecting to do something that day, to leave Dallas, uh, expecting expecting something to happen for his own personal uh, agenda, Mm -hmm. uh, which is why he left his his wallet, his money, his wedding ring with his his wife. He was planning to do something that day, but there's no sign that it involved killing President Kennedy, and that's reflected in the testimony because his whole – the witnesses, the cab driver, the bus driver, the witnesses who saw him after the assassination – observed his behavior totally change from the time he left the school book depository to the time he actually learned that the president was killed. And he virtually went into shock at that point in time. The same thing can be said for Jack Ruby. Uh, Something did not happen that they expected. And what it appears to be is that was the actual killing of the president.
3: So was Lee Harvey Oswald, um, involved with either of the National Security Agency or was he a CIA operative?
1: It's, Lee Oswald, we actually have, again, the documents that show that Lee Oswald had volunteered to provide information to the FBI. And his, in his very first interview with the mm-hmm. FBI after his return to the United States, he's on record as having offered to inform to the FBI any contacts with him that appeared suspicious In New Orleans, he went so far as when he was jailed for leafleting, calling for an interview with the FBI, having an interview with the FBI. And we now know that the person he requested by name was an FBI counterintelligence officer. Uh, There's every sign that he was an informant for the FBI. um, And there was actually a file memo of that on record that the FBI had to work very hard to cover up in New Orleans. CIA, the CIA was very much aware of them. The CIA may have been using him through a third-party connection uh, as, as a dangle, which means they all they really had to do was watch mm-hmm. who he was talking to and who was talking to him. The FBI connection is much closer and very likely explains why the FBI obfuscated part of the investigation and lied about part of it
3: so where did jack ruby come in uh, fall into place in all of this you know you've got lee harvey Oswald who's been arrested and uh, being charged with the assassination of president kennedy they're bringing him down to the police garage to transport him jack ruby who is very friendly with the cops gets in ruby goes right up to him point blank range and, and fires a, a round into his stomach
1: and that that was not spontaneous on Ruby's part the The strange thing is that Ruby's defense um, claimed that he did that spontaneously because he was so concerned about Jackie Kennedy having to come back to some sort of a trial and testify mm-hmm. of course later on the off the attorney that offered him that excuse uh, said that he had made it up on the spot and it was totally fiction. Uh, long story short ruby had been brought on board to do certain contacts logistics work in advance of the attack he he was not aware that it was going to be an actual attempt to kill the president he was thinking it was going to be something more in the nature of a false flag exercise to point the blame at cuba Mm -hmm. um when he found out, and you can, in, in my book, someone would have talked, I do a kind of minute-by-minute microanalysis of his behavior, and you can see exactly, as with Oswald, when he learns that it what happened wasn't what he expected to happen, um, he actually becomes violently ill and and becomes throwing up. I, but, I mean, clearly something shook him to the core. Sure. And, and in the beginning, we have, an, uh, again, another informant who said that Jack actually said, hey, come down and, and watch the motorcade with me. We're going to watch Kennedy, and it's going to be exciting. And they did, and, and this is on record. And then Jack went back to the news office and, to place an ad. And so he was, he was totally off base, and it was a shock. And he received a telephone call, and we know where he got the telephone call from that afternoon from Los Angeles, Changing his whole task, and his task became Oswald was never supposed to be taken into custody, and suddenly Ruby is the only guy in place who could do something about that.
3: Why? Why don't you? Why do you think that that uh, the Warren Commission would not take Jack Ruby back to Washington, where Jack Ruby was willing to talk, give names, give information that he had? Why was he just left in jail to die?
1: Because Earl Warren, again, we know at this point in time, Earl Warren had been given a charter from President Johnson to make Oswald the lone person, not to explore a conspiracy, and essentially to close down leads to a conspiracy. And he was given that order because of the national security implications of what was suspected. I can tell you that over the weekend after the assassination, there were meetings of national security cabinet level personnel, and it it became clear. We know the meetings occurred. It became clear that this was a national security situation that was very live. And if you really went where it was pointing, the nation was in big trouble.
3: All right, so let me ask you the million-dollar question. Who assassinated (laughs) President Kennedy and why?
1: Well, since I've written this, I'm going to have to defend it. It took me a few hundred pages to do that. Mm -hmm. He was assassinated because uh, certain senior CIA officers became aware that Jack Kennedy was in back-channel negotiations with Fidel Castro, that Fidel Castro was willing to kick the Russians out, take Cuba neutral, The U.S. would lift the embargo. This would be a huge win for Kennedy. However, the officers involved considered it treason. They shared that information with Cuban exiles that they had been working with to kill Castro, told the Cuban exiles that unless something was done about JFK, uh, it was done. They were never going home. And this group of individuals essentially put together the tactical team that killed JFK.
3: So why are there still people out there today who believe the uh, mafia had something to do with the assassination of Kennedy?
1: Um, primarily because one of the individuals involved in this this team that I was talking about mm-hmm. to kill Castro, it, it included William Harvey, uh, some CIA officers, David Morales out of J.M. Wave in Miami, and John Roselli, who was not a, he was a, mob coordinator, if you were. He was a money raiser. He was a contact guy. He sold consulting services to place skim money, but he knew all the godfathers. And Roselli was brought into the plot because to assassinate Castro before the Bay of Pigs because he had contacts in Havana. He had worked there, worked in the casinos, and they were going to use his contacts to poison Castro. And he was maintained in plots to kill Castro into 1963 and was part of this cadre that was told that all their efforts were in vain and uh, Roselli and Harvey both considered JFK to be a traitor and so there was a mob connection Roselli was the conduit for example That brought Ruby
3: in. Larry, I hate to do this, my friend, but you and I have run out of time. We're going to have to have you back on because I'd love to have the conversation about UFOs with you. So Larry uh, Hancock, thank you so much for joining us. We'll have you back on within the next couple of weeks talking about UFOs. And Nation. if you'd like to find out more about Larry Hancock, where you can get his books, great reads, great researcher, great work. www.larry-hancock.com We'll be back after the news. Don't go away.